Vampire War for the Second City is a Vampire the Masquerade 5th edition actual play podcast presented by DM Fiat with I, Dale, as storyteller. Please be advised that this podcast contains descriptions of gore, depravity, addiction, coercion, and other adult themes. This is not D&D. This is a game where we play monsters of the night who do monstrous things. So, welcome to our mini-session for Derek. Please keep in mind that uh, this mini-session actually takes place after our next session in, in the chronology. So, what we're going to do is, instead of using the hunger as it's written on your character sheet, we're just going to say that any time you gain hunger during this mini-session that'll get added to your starting hunger at the start of the next story. That way we don't complicate things. Okay. So, it's the night after Elysium. Elysium ended up going until pretty much the crack of dawn, and after Elysium, you didn't have time to check in on your newly acquired Thin Blood friends, but you did leave them with Sage for the night, assuming they'll be safe there. And so it's the next night now, and as you awaken in your makeshift church in the midst of Carlton, a couple blocks away from the Chantry at the University of Melbourne, Professor Cypher requires every Tremere under his command to be within a certain proximity of his own haven so that he may visit them at any time or may call them in to see him when he has business to discuss or menial tasks to bestow upon you. 
I would like you to please make a rouse check as you awaken, as the blood begins to animate your corpse. Yeah. Ooh, that's already one hunger. Am I already one hunger? Okay, that's fine. And so you pull yourself out of your four-poster bed in your haven that is half library, half makeshift laboratory and you stumble out into the church proper unfortunately most of your herd are not present tonight there are a couple of worshippers that are seated in the pews and as you step out they look up at you with looks of reverence but judging by the pale pallor of their skin you've fed from them recently and so tonight you're going to make sure that you give them a chance to rest so as to not drain them more than you need to. Instead, you simply give them your blessing and leave them to their own devices. And you venture out into the parking lot behind your church, which was once a... which was once a supermarket branch on the corner of this isolated street and from the outside still bears many of the same trappings of this type of establishment. The car park of course is empty as it's no longer used for its original purpose. The only car that's there is your beater. So you climb in, you start the engine and begin the long drive down to the Red Star in St Kilda, all the way on the opposite side of Melbourne, a journey that will take at least half an hour. And so as you negotiate the streets of Melbourne, wind your way through the CBD, over the Yarra River, and into the more industrial suburbs that are on the very fringes of the Camarillas domain. Is there anything you would like to do or are you heading straight to the Red Star? Uh, yeah, nothing in particular at the moment, just getting to the Red Star, see how they're doing. Yep. Do you make any phone call to let them know you're coming or do you just assume that the Thin Bloods will be waiting for you? Uh, sort of assuming at the very least that Sage will be expecting me. Yeah, she probably will be. Yeah, she's the one I told, yeah. <laughs> so focusing on quieting your beast, ignoring the slight stabs of hunger you feel, you make your way to the Red Star, eventually arrive about 8.30pm park your car up underneath the overpass and walk towards the Red Star and it looks much the same as the last time you were here the windows are still boarded up the street that runs up to it is pretty much empty and the only thing that is different from last time is that you notice a large red Soviet communist flag has been put up for display in front of the main entrance in a little bay window. Perhaps 
now that you've provided her with some new willing students, Sage has taken it upon herself to fly her allegiances more openly. You step inside the Red Star, and for an instant, you're taken back to your own first night as a kindred. The bar looks exactly the same. The same unpolished wooden floors, the same shelf with the same low market bottom of the barrel whiskies and bourbons and vodkas lining lining it the same posters for the exact same gothic and heavy metal bands emblazoned the walls there are a couple of people in the bar that are drinking and as you step in they just look up at you and a couple of them give you a lingering look given what you're wearing you're dressed in your best church going attire which consists of you know your trench coat and your glass and your thick glasses and your dress slacks underneath tremere symbol displayed hung around your neck but they're obviously used to seeing strange clientele here in Sage's bar, so these couple of mortals who are getting an early start to the night's drinking look away. And there behind the counter, standing next to the ghouled bartender who carefully watches you as you approach, is Sage. And as you walk up to her, the wooden door behind the bar opens and out steps someone you were not expecting to see. Looking almost a mirror image for how she looked on the night you first met her, wearing the same sequenced light purple dress, is Jackie. And she just smiles and waves as you approach. Sage says, Ah, come to, uh, Pick up the baby teeth? Yes. I'm assuming you didn't scare them too much. Well, I did give them, you know, the basic rundown of the Camarilla and the Anarchs. Tried to sweeten the deal for them throwing in with us. After all, they may be thin bloods, but our movement needs as many members as it can get with things going the way they're going and I mean they're thin bloods it's not like anyone else is going to give them the time of day she narrows her eyes at this and stares at the Tremere insignia around your neck and she says in fact that's what's strange of all the people to take thin bloods under their wing it's a member of the Chantry no less don't suppose Professor Cypher knows about this? I'd imagine he doesn't at the moment. She just looks, exchanges a glance with Jackie, and then she says, Ooh, playing it dangerous. You know, Professor Cypher, I know, may not be a Tremere, but I know what he's like, and member of his chantry doing something like this in secret? Ooh, you better hope he doesn't find out. 
or if he does, Jackie takes a step forwards and she places a hand on Sage's shoulder and she smiles and she says, now, now, somehow he has a silver tongue enough to talk down last in the skirt, so I'm sure Professor Cypher won't be much of an issue. If it comes to that. Hopefully it won't. Both of them nod. And then Sage says, well, I gave them some of some of uh, Rusty's blood here. She nudges the bartender with her elbow. Not a lot, just enough for them to stave off the hunger frenzy. You'll be wanting to teach them how to hunt. And, well, Jackie here, I hope you don't mind. I called in Jackie. She's the one who's good at showing new kindred the ropes you'll remember me i just want to lay down the recruitment speech jackie smiles and says yes well i've told them what they are told them what they should know about their condition but well they're unlike any kindred i've seen before i'll tell you that much i know they're thin bloods and all but well Train them up the right way, and I think they're going to be very useful. Oh? She says, <laughs> you'll see. Just, uh, you'll want to teach them how to hunt, maybe how to harness their disciplines. Aside from that, uh, they're free for you to mould into your own image. Now, she says... Shall we uh, pay them a visit and let them know that their new sire has arrived? Yes, I suppose we should, rather than keeping them waiting, waiting any longer. Sage pumps a fist in the air and she says, Rock on! And then Jackie gestures for you to follow her. Make your way around the bar and follow Jackie into a back room. The same back room where you and the Coterie all collapsed on the edge of daybreak on your first night. And here, you see, sitting on the edges of the mattresses that are just stuffed on the floor, are the two thin bloods. The woman in her purple dress, Emily McGovern, and the man with the mohawk in a heavy metal t-shirt, Slick. And as you step into the room, they both raise themselves, climbing to their feet, make their way over to you, and exchange glances with each other, and then Slick holds out a hand in greeting and he says oh man you're finally here oh emily and me well we've been trying to come to terms with you know this this whole vampire thing but uh, we knew that the real fun would begin when you got here oh we we've been waiting all day we've just been sitting here waiting for you to come we assumed you probably wouldn't show up until night fell, but, you know, we, we had the hope that maybe you'd uh, get off early from whatever you were doing, come pay us a visit, you know, maybe in the afternoon, but, oh, we've just been sitting here on the edge of, edge of our seats, ants in the pants, waiting to see what education you're going to provide for us. 
You look over at Jackie and she raises an eyebrow at you. Apparently the Thin Bloods have been waiting for you all day. Yeah, that was intriguing. <laughs> you may make an intelligence occult check if you like. Yeah. Okay, three successes. Three successes. So, you have heard that some thin bloods, perhaps being more human than kindred, are said to be able to not only stay awake during the daylight but can withstand the effects of the sun. They can operate during the day. This is whispered and it's nothing more than hearsay and rumor, but if these thin bloods are telling the truth, then perhaps it's true after all. You may have found two thin bloods who are actually daywalkers. Okay. Do you wish to make any comment to them about this? Uh, well, just before I do, just a quick question. Is it so, with, like, kindred and sunlight, is it like a, do you have to have your, is like, your whole body have to be enveloped in sunlight for you to disappear, or is it like, if any, sunlight touches just any, any part, part of you, of you gets die? touched by sunlight at any time, you'll start taking damage. So all it takes is a single ray of sunlight to touch the tip of your finger. Oh, so like, yeah, so like, I can stick my hand out in the sunlight and it'll just like hurt like hell, but it won't kill me instantly. Yeah, it'll burn your hand off most likely, but unless okay. you, unless you like hold your hand out there for a long enough time, you won't die. You won't die instantly. There is the chance though that you'll catch on fire from your hand burning. Okay, just thinking that, yeah, maybe having them test it so I don't want to accidentally kill them if it's like... Wait until the sun rises and then stick your hand out and then they just burst into flames. Yeah, you wouldn't want to do that if they... If they aren't actually daywalkers. Yeah. But there'll be ample time just... to test that. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, so just, yeah, after they said, I'll just, like... You will... Uh, so you... So you... I'm... Neither of you slept this entire time. They look at each other and then Emily looks back, shakes her head, and she says, No... Is that normal? Uh, I assumed that the vampires sleeping during the day thing was a myth. After all, uh, neither of us have felt particularly tired. Given what's just happened to us, our heads are spinning with questions, and I don't think anyone could sleep in a situation like this. No, well, yeah, I guess that is fair enough. That's... Very interesting, but yes, I imagine you have a lot of questions, even with what Sage just told you. And yet, on your own night, despite the fact that you had a head bursting full of questions as well, yeah. the exhaustion seemed to overwhelm you and you could not resist. Slick, Slick just runs up to you and he seemingly in a fit of misjudged bravado, reaches out and grabs your right hand, clasping it in a handshake, almost like he's 
almost like he's just been hired at a new job and he's shaking the boss's hand and ignoring the look of shock on your face. He just says, yeah, a lot of questions. And, uh, well, Jackie laid down most of it, but she said you were going to teach us how to hunt and noticing your lips getting thinner and thinner he lets go of your hand takes a step back and says well we may not have felt tired but we are feeling hungry and well we've been waiting for you to arrive so that we can find out how we're supposed to uh feed without uh what was it he looks over at emily and emily shrugs and says uh breaking the masquerade jackie nods and says yeah uh they want to know how to hunt without making a mess yes which is going to be difficult thing is neither of you have well you, yeah, you both have baby teeth they smile revealing yeah indeed they don't have fangs and Jackie next to you shrugs and she says, mm, yes, they won't be able to feed like we can. Means they're going to have to go about it in perhaps a bit more of a violent fashion. She yeah. fumbles around in her clutch for a moment and then she pulls out a switchblade with its handle encrusted in little silver rhinestones. And she holds it out and Slick takes it, flicks the blade out and then slides it back into the handle. And Jackie says, as long as you can get the blood flowing, I suppose you'll be able to lick the wound and cover it up when you're done. Of course, approaching someone with a knife is going to add a lot more difficulty to it. She looks over at you and she says... Perhaps you'll have to show them mm, how to subdue potential target. Get close enough to them that they can actually get the knife in. Never mind just waddling up and feeding from them. You're going to have to apply a bit of a more direct hand to this. Yeah, so, yeah. See where, the, see where the strengths lie and we'll try and work on those try and help them figure out their feeding style Jackie nods and then she says well I'll leave you to it you're the teacher I'll leave you to educate them oh but before I go uh, Sage didn't really tell me what's going on with you and the Chantry what exactly are you planning to do with these two uh if I'm completely honest, not totally sure yet. She says, they well... Like they could be very good assets. <laughs> she says, oh, if, if it's true what they're saying about staying awake during the day, then, yeah, um, we could use them. But, well, I ask because I'm not sure where they're going to stay. I mean, you could always put them up in your haven, but... I'm figuring you want to keep this secret from the rest of the Chantry for now. And, well, I know how you Tremere guys are all tightly knit. 
Professor Cypher knows where your haven is and he likes to pay a visit with little notice at all. There'd only be a matter of time before he realised you're keeping these guys there. Or, I was thinking, if you'd be willing to owe me a boon, maybe I could call up some contacts in the Anarchs. This wouldn't be the first time they've sheltered Thin Bloods. They, in fact, they have a speaker for the Thin Bloods. They call him. No, that's his role. He's the speaker. He speaks for the Thin Bloods. Randall Morrow, I think his name is. If you'd be willing to uh, plead your case to him, I could probably get him to meet you here when the hunting's done. It's up to you, of course. So you could tell, you could keep them in your haven, but it's likely that the Chantry would find out eventually, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything bad. You could just straight up tell the Chantry and convince Professor Cypher that you have a use for the Thin Bloods. It's entirely up to you how you want to play this. Are out there. So she she just shrugs and she says she says I can make the call. You just gotta give the word. Um, just remember, most of the Camarilla not good with thin bloods. Hell, they're not going to destroy them on sight like Larson would. But if you want these guys to have the best chance of survival, my recommendation would be the Anarchs. But they're effectively your charter, so whatever you think is best, I'm willing to defer to you. Well, yeah, I think I'll I'll think on it for a bit, and yeah, I'll get back to you if I go through with it. She if nods. Gives you a thumbs up. She says, just give Jackie a call and uh, we'll set up the appropriate meeting if that's what you want. Then she looks over at the Thin Bloods and she says, well, your first night as well, kindred, I suppose. Uh, have fun and good luck. And listen to everything Derek tells you because he's been doing this a hell of a lot longer than you have. And then she smiles, looks over at you, and she says, and that goes for you as well. Best of luck. I think you're going to need it. And then she steps out of the room into the bar, leaving you alone with the Thin Bloods. The two Thin Bloods immediately approach you, gathering around you, eager yet questioning looks on their faces. They're waiting for you to waiting for you to give their first order. It's up to you to teach them how to hunt. How would you like to do so? Where do you think would be the best place to go? Well, my initial thought was going to be, because I know the area around my haven is now my domain. I'll it is, yes. Because then... Yeah, because then I don't run into any poaching problems. 
So you could, yep, go to your own domain, and that is your domain, and you can do whatever you like there. This, this area, however, is Sage's domain, and you could probably hunt here, but she might wish something in return, perhaps a future boon. Alternatively, if you don't fancy the long drive all the way back through the city to your own domain, you could take them into the CBD, into the rack, which is the prince's domain, and free for everyone to hunt so long as they respect the traditions. Of course, you'd be taking Thin Blood straight into Camarilla domain, and there's always the risk that someone you know might see them. No, yeah, I think yeah. For the first line, I'm going to take him to take him back to my domain. Yep. And then I can ask him sort of questions on the drive. So you lead them through the bar, wave goodbye to Sage and Jackie as you as the three of you step out into the winter night air, and you lead them towards your car. And as you approach it, Emily just raises an eyebrow and she says, "Huh, Mister Master Vampire." Considering how you're dressed uh, and how you're so keen on educating us, I thought you would have driven something a bit more, you know, fancy. Yeah, well, I guess one of the, one of the things you'll have to get used to in kindred society is we don't really use money. So there's not, not an easy way to earn it. Slick just steps forwards. He pulls open the back door and climbs in, makes himself at home on the back seat, stretching out. He says, ah, don't worry, Emily. Old car like this may be a beater, but uh, it's been lived in. You can feel it. It's like being at home. She just shrugs, climbs in next to him. Then you shut the door on them, climb into the driver's seat, and start the engine. You don't bother crossing through the city this time. You get on the nearest... You get on the nearest motorway up onto the M1 and allow it to take you out of the city and straight through onto the suburbs on the other side. And as you merge into the parade of cars making their way down this artery around the city. Notice the two thin bloods are just staring straight at the back of your head. You can see them in the rearview mirror. Their gaze is fixated upon you and they're both just completely unmoving, unnaturally still in anticipation. I guess and then as I'm, as I'm driving them back, I'm just, just like asking questions, like asking them, like, basically trying to ask, like, what were your strengths in life? Like, were you, like, were you a people person? Did you like to work out? Like, kind of like basically trying to figure out, like, what their uh, disciplines might be, sort of thing. Yep. So I'd what like, their strengths might be. I'd like you to please make either a charisma or manipulation plus uh, leadership or persuasion. So any combination of those. 
Yeah, let's go to Charisma Persuasion, because that's way better. Ooh, okay, so that's four successes with two being a critical, so that's five, isn't it? Ooh, yeah. Other cars scream past you in a blur. Far off in the distance, you can see the pillars of light, the Melbourne skyline that's become so familiar to you. You start a conversation with the Thin Bloods, trying to get a feel for who they were, who they are. And you learn that Slick, for the most part, was pretty much a slacker in life never really seems to hold a permanent job he was in and out of employment and you know he'd spend a year as a dishwasher and then he'd just laze around for another year and then he'd be back into work again this time manning the counter at a gas station he seemed to just drift from job to job his only real passion in life being heavy metal he'd always make sure that he was at whatever local gig was happening in his area and always made sure that his battle jacket, as he lovingly calls it, was ready to go at a moment's notice, covered in patches and badges for his favourite bands. When he'd go to these gigs, his favourite part of them, he would explain, was to get right in the front and centre, right in the mosh pit and... He describes it as simply jamming along to the song, enjoying the time, but you get the impression of, well, it sounds a lot more like he would get into fist fights with other people at the gigs and they would have full-on punch-ons to the beat of the music. You get the impression that his tempers run high and he likes to pick fights. But he seemed to enjoy it. He was happy with his life until just last night when it was completely turned around. Emily, on the other hand, is more of a people person. Well, more of a people person than Slick, but still not a people person in the sense that she's used to socialising. She explains to you that in life she was a personal trainer at a local gym and partying, in fact most forms of socialising, weren't her scene. The only reason she was at the club that night was because a friend had pulled her arm and made her accompany her. She knows how to talk to people to find out what their needs are and how to address them, but that's about the extent of it. What she is good at, however, is being flexible, moving fast and maintaining her physical peak. Okay, okay. With this in mind, you may make a Wits Insight check. Oh, I do not think that's going to be good. 
Yeah, I'm going to rouse wits for this. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. See if you can detect any sign of any discipline with this information. I guess it's a success on the rouse, so I don't get hungry. Yep, that's good. Oh, it's so annoying. I got one success, but it was a critical, but it's only one, so... Yeah, it's only one. So, as you drive, you divide your attention. You have to keep an eye on the road, but... You summon your vampiric wits, your hunter's sense, pumping the blood through your body to try to see if either of the two is exhibiting any sign of any discipline. You know that thin bloods usually don't have disciplines of their own. Usually they rely on thin blood alchemy to mimic the powers that come naturally to other kindred. But occasionally, in rare cases, they have a hint of the curse of their sires and may exhibit some disciplines on their own. You notice that as you drive... Emily seems to be pressed up against the window and she's tracing the cars as they drive by with her finger, her finger swiping with unnatural grace and dexterity across the glass as she traces the passage of each car perfectly. Meanwhile, you notice that Slick spends the entire ride with his fists clenched. Perhaps he's feeling a little bit tense, a little bit nervous as he's about to hunt for the first time. But you notice the more he clenches his fists, the more they seem to sink into the upholstery of your car. And when he finally moves his fist, there's a fist-sized groove left in the leather, almost as if he's... sunk his fist into the seat with such strength that he's left a permanent mark. And you suspect that they may be exhibiting celerity and potence. anything else you'd like to ask them as you draw closer to your destination uh. at least you have a feel for how they might like to hunt yeah Anything else you'd like to feel out about them? I'm trying to think. I guess would have, I guess would have, part of the conversation would have been about like if they've had any like actual like fighting experience, but I'm guessing like with yeah, Slick would have just been him just getting into punch. Slim get yeah, Slick gets into punch ons at gigs, and Emily, well, she says that she you know, knows a little bit of boxing from her training, but she 
has never been in a fight and quite frankly if it's anything like how things were when you guys all met she's not relishing the chance to get into another one but that's fair you're not teaching them to fight you're teaching them to hunt they do seem, seem to have some abilities and might be able to defend themselves if it comes to that, but if you teach them well enough, they won't need to defend themselves. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, I'm just trying to use that knowledge of, like, alright, so they don't have fangs, how, am I, how are they supposed to, Yeah, like, how are they going to... ...incapacitate someone and, without making too much of a, a rockets? Perhaps you get, the, you get the idea as you think about it that... Well, this is not normal for most kindred. Most kindred usually hunt on their own, but given mm. that these guys don't have teeth, perhaps they might be better served hunting as a duo. Okay. After all, two against one is better odds than one, even for a kindred, and especially when you don't have teeth and you're relying on your ability to subdue someone more forcibly. So the car... I guess. Yep. I was gonna, one of the last things I just asked them was like, if either of them has any sort of like, you know, like first aid or medical training. First aid or medical training. They look at each other and Emily nods and she says, yes, yeah, cert one gotta have it if you're gonna be a personal trainer uh can patch people up if you know they cut themselves or get a sprain or something but i don't think we work like that do we do vampires work the same way can you know just put a bit of alcohol on it cotton ball slap a bandage on no my thought was actually for your targets actually seeing as you don't have teeth so you'll need to be using a knife or something the two of mm. them the two of them just say in unison ah right mm. well i mean when you feed sure you're not using a knife but you're still getting the blood out what do you do when you feed well as a full blood after i feed i can lick the wound and it will close itself they nod and slick says well sure we don't have teeth but i mean we're still vampires why don't we give that a try yeah i suppose it couldn't hurt to try they they look at each other and you see emily just shudder she's clearly not finding either option that appealing and eventually your car turns off the motorway down into Fitzroy and make your way through the make your way through the blocks of old converted industrial buildings that are now hipster cafes and nightclubs catering to Melbourne's young adults the uni crowd from uni Melbourne and make your way into Carlton and soon enough at just before just after 
9.20 p.m. or so, you turn the corner and see your quote-unquote church at the end of the street commanding your presence, its size and stature dominating all the other buildings on the block. This is your domain. And there are three places here where you might send your new protégés to hunt. The first is to simply let them wander the streets and the alleyways, see who they come upon, see if they can get someone on their own, and catch them off guard, subdue them, and feed. The second is a 24-hour milk bar on the opposite end of the block to your church. In all your time here, you've never seen many people there during the night. There's usually a single person inside manning the counter. Occasionally, you might see a single customer, but for most of the night shift, it appears to be quiet and... un quiet and unscrutinized by the general public. The third location is a dive bar sequestered in the middle of two large brick buildings right in between a laundromat and a tax office. You need to use a side street to access the front entrance down a short flight of concrete steps. This dive bar is not really a dive bar. It exudes the atmosphere and the trappings of a dive bar, but in reality it caters to the uni student crowd. It serves cheap drinks and plays modern pop music. And at most points during the night, there's always at least a handful of young adults in there. Sometimes the occasional biker or other roughneck who's fallen for the trappings outside and wandered in thinking it's an actual dive bar. Okay. So you pull you pull up your car on the side of the street right in front of your haven and kill the engine. And then you turn around Lean your head over the top of the seat. Look at the two thin bloods. And where would you have them go? Uh, the so the bar is there like other buildings around it? So if like so there's it's it's wedged right in between a laundromat and a tax office, but both are closed at this yeah. time of night. So there are other buildings, but they're empty, and the only sign of life in this cluster of four or five establishments is the dive bar itself, and the only life, of course, is inside the dive bar. The entrance is just a simple flight of stairs leading to a wooden door with the trading hours on a faded piece of paper taped to the front of the door. If you get close enough, you can sometimes hear the bass of the music from inside, but 
walking past, most people wouldn't even think that there's a bar there. Yeah, I think we'll, yeah, we'll try, I'll try the bar. Yep. So you decide that perhaps someone who's under the influence might be an easier target for their first hunt. And so you gesture for them to follow you. Climb out of your car and lead them down the road past the shuttered laundromat, down the side street, and then you gesture towards the wooden door at the end of the staircase, telling them that the dive bar should be full of potential victims, mostly uni students, young, naive, and hopefully drunk enough that they should be able to get the drop on them. Emily looks at you and she says, Okay, I think that's a good idea, but how exactly do we approach it? I mean, we're going to hang around in there, wait for one of them to head off to the bathroom and ambush them in there or chat them up, get them to follow us someplace, lead them somewhere away from everyone else. How should we do this? Uh, I mean, both are viable options. Sort of goes with whatever you feel is more natural. Slick looks at her and he says, hmm, well, they're drinking a lot in there, right? And when you drink a lot, you got to piss a lot. So I reckon we just follow one of them into the bathroom, get them while their back's turned. I'll pin them to the wall or something and then you get the knife in, all right? She nods and then she looks back at you and she says, hmm, I don't know. You've done this plenty of times. Do you think that's a good plan? Usually, even though it's the two of you, it still probably would be best to get them unconscious. That way you won't cause much, or much of a hassle. Right, says Slick. Well, I mean, I think I can do that. <laughs> I've knocked a bloke unconscious a couple times in my day, uh, so long as we get them on their own. And I mean, we're talking uni students here. Like, we're talking, you know, hipsters and vegans and, you know, artsy people, right? So they shouldn't put up much of a fight. Like, just jump out, smack one of them in the back of the head, and, uh, well, that should, that should be... Right, I suppose. He says, so what about you? You're going to come in and uh, keep an eye out for us, or is this entirely on us? I'll be keeping an eye on things, but I'm going to mostly see how you do. They nod, and then, oh, yep. Yeah. yeah, and I'm, I'm presuming this was something Sage told you, but just as a reminder, it's, only knock them unconscious, don't kill them. Slick exchanges a glance with Emily and they look back at you and then they shudder, remembering the hunger frenzy and the sheer f 
force of destruction that they became. Slick says, yeah, got it, boss. No killing. I mean, we'll try. Hopefully, hopefully I can not let my strength run away with me. I, I think I got a handle on it while we were waiting in Sage's place. Let's hope I don't hit him too hard, eh? And he takes a step forward and reaches for the handle on the wooden door, pulls it open and admits you and Emily into the bar. Top 100 pop music instantly fills your ears, a stark contrast to what the bar itself looks like. It's dimly lit. The few lights that are on are barely able to illuminate the entire bar space. One of them continuously flickers the light bulb on its last legs. The clientele appear to be mainly uni students. There's at least 10 to 15 people in attendance tonight, loudly talking and laughing as they drink and scoff down bar food and a bored-looking bored-looking bartender behind the bar, a girl of about 22, 23. She's just leaning forwards on the wooden bar, carefully scanning the area. She sees you enter, briefly meets your eye, and then goes back to her vigilant watch of the rest of her customers. Make your way over to the bar, sit down on the stool, and gesture for the two thin bloods to sit on either side of you. The bartender looks at you expectantly. Yeah, I'll order a round of drinks for us. Yep. I'm not a drinker myself, so I don't know what to order. <laughs> you order a round of drinks. You tell, ask her, ask her for what's popular tonight, and she nods and she says, "Oh yeah, uh, that'll be the German craft beer." Uh, so three, yeah, that'll be uh, it'll be thirty six dollars. She says. You hand her the money. She counts out the change. Cash register dings, and five minutes later, you're all nursing a green bottle of German craft beer. You suppose you have to drink it to maintain appearances. Beside you, the two thin bloods rip the bottle caps off and begin sipping their beer. Apparently, they're just human enough that they don't need to rouse the blood to be able to convincingly consume human food and drink, but you're not so lucky, keeping in mind that the bartender is watching you expectantly and she's leaning in eager to see what you think of what is obviously her favourite beer. Would you like to rouse the blood and down a gulp? Or do you just uh, sit and wait? Uh, so I actually have the eat food merit. Ah, oh, you do. Don't Lovely. Need so no them. need to rouse the blood. <laughs> so you un pull the you pull the bottle cap off, and then you raise the bottle in a toast to your two companions. They nod and cheer back. You take a swig of beer. The bartender looks at you expectantly, and she says, "Hmm, good, isn't it?" Mm, yeah, surprisingly good. 
She opens her mouth to say something else, and then in the background you hear shattering glass and a loud cheer. Hey, taxi! She frowns and she says, oh, someone's overdone it. I'll be right back. And she darts over to the other side of the bar towards a, a group of uni students who are dressed like punks. Leather vests, mohawks, chains, earrings, and one of them's just dropped a picture and it's shattered on the floor. It's at this point that a man on the opposite side of the bar gets up, sitting on his own, a table all to himself. He takes a swig of the VB stubby in his hand and then crushes the can in his beefy fingers, steps out into the dim light. He's a well-built man wearing a long black jacket, faded and torn blue denim jeans and thick black boots with silver spurs on them. He finishes crushing the can, throws it down onto the table beside him and then looks around. His gaze fixates upon a small hallway a couple of metres away from you, beyond the edge of the bar. The hallway that leads to the bathroom. And then he begins to make a beeline to the toilets. The two thin bloods watch him disappear around the corner, and then they look at you, waiting for the order. Well, it looks like your first hunt begins. All right. You're fine with them going after this guy? He's on his own, yeah. so... They nod silently, then they get up, and you watch as they make their way towards the bathroom. As they stand up, Slick clenches his fist and slams his bottle of beer down on the counter, and as he does, the bottle snaps neatly in two. The beer begins to run down the countertop. He doesn't appear to notice as he walks purposefully towards the bathroom. Emily just frowns and then follows behind him. Walking too with a sense of purpose, but faster with more grace. The two disappear around the corner and you wait. While you wait, you sweep the shards of glass, what's left of Slick's beer bottle, into the little plastic bin behind the counter, glad that the bartender is still busy with her other clients. And while you wait, is there anything you'd like to do in particular? I just sort of like give it a few seconds, like give it a few seconds, and then I'll sort of try and casually like make my way over to like the the head of the corridor that heads the way down, just to sort of like try and keep an ear out on them. Yep. So, trying not to be conspicuous, um, I would ask you to please make either a dex stealth check or 
a manipulation subterfuge check. Ooh, manipulation substitute. <laughs> Three successes. Three successes, yep. So, you climb up from your stool and quietly make your way to the edge of the bar, to the head of the corridor. And then you lean up against the wall, tapping your hand on the brick and pretend as if you're waiting for a friend to come out of the bathroom, probably so that you can leave or order another round of drinks, occasionally peering down the corridor. The bathrooms don't appear to be separated by gender in this establishment. There's a single door at the end of the corridor with a picture of a toilet on it. And so you fix your gaze upon this door and just wait to see what happens close by in case any trouble were to arise. After a while, the bartender returns to her station behind the bar. She notices you waiting at the head of the corridor and she just nods and smiles. To her, you're simply waiting for the bathroom to be free. I'm gonna roll for the baby teeth now and see how they go. It's going to be a dice pool of four with a hunger of three for Slick versus So you wait for a moment, the, the, the tension building, it's becoming so thick that you could cut it. And then, after a solid minute has passed, you hear something that makes your heart sink. The sound of smashing glass and tile and a muffled scream. And then Emily's voice in a waver shouting, Ah, uh, a uh, little help. Yeah, I'll try and head in, yeah. Look over yeah. your shoulder, take a glance at the bartender. She's at the moment her attention is focused on pouring a flagon of beer for one of the other clients. And so you quickly dart into the shadows of the corridor, run towards the bathroom at the end and burst through the door. And as you step in, you realize what has happened. Slick as he intended made the first move. He snuck up on the man while he was taking a piss and attempted to subdue him. But it appears he's had... It appears he's let his beast get the better of him. He rolled a messy critical on his attempt to hold up the man. And right now, the man stands at the other side of the bathroom with slick switchblade hanging out of his rib. His face contorted in rage and anger. Slick lies on the ground with a nasty bruise on his lower neck as 
Emily stands by the entrance cowering. The man winces with the switch blade between his ribs and in his other hand he's in his other hand he's pulled out a weapon of his own a serrated combat knife. As you run in as you run in, he sees you enter, and he looks in your direction. He says, oh, what's this? Another fucking pussy here to knock old Conrad off his fucking... Knock off old fucking Conrad when he's taking a piss. In the middle of the room, in front of the urinal where the man was presumably relieving himself, there's a puddle of piss that's eking its way into the grooves of the tiles. Just gonna, yeah, just let out a sigh and just, and just look at him and just go to sleep. <laughs> Very to well. <laughs> go ahead and please make our first rouse the blood. A success. Right, don't get hungry. Yep. Please make a manipulation plus dominate. It's going to be against his intelligence plus resolve. I can burn a willpower to reroll three, can't I? You can, yes. Any that are not successes. Yes. Uh, yeah, I will burn a will and reroll three of those. Yep. But I don't want this getting any further out of hand. <laughs> Yeah, that's much better. So now it's four successes. Four successes to his two successes. Look him in the eye and bark your usual command, go to sleep. He raises his blade and he looks at you and he says, I'll be putting you to sleep. You don't want to fuck with old Conrad. And then he, his voice just stops mid-utterance. His fingers go limp, his knife clatters to the ground, and he just falls forwards, and a pool of blood and piss begins to form around him as he lies on the dirty tile floor. Oh, oh, says Slick, breathing heavily. Oh, man, I... I had him, I... Had him, I held him up. He couldn't fight back, but then there was like something in me, and it was. Oh, it was just telling me, take it further. No, don't hold him up. For some reason, I wanted to do serious damage. And so I plunged the knife in. Plunged the knife into his rib, and then pushed him away from the urinal, and. Oh, man, he, he whirled around with. I was not expecting that, for I knew it he'd whipped out a knife of his own, sent me flying across the room, 
was ready to pounce on Emily here until you jumped in. Emily nods. She says, yeah, swung his knife at me. I managed to dodge and, uh, might I say, I don't think I've ever done anything like that. That guy was fast with his blade. He turned around. He recovered from Slick pushing him within seconds. was charging at me with the knife. I jumped back and it was like... It was like I was moving with the air. I, I leaped back and I covered half the room in a fraction of a second. I was standing with Slick and next thing I know I'm at the entrance and I'm calling out for you. You nod. She used her celerity to dodge his attack. Seems to have used it quite effectively. Slick, on the other hand, seems to have overdone it with his potence. Inflicted some permanent damage on the man and botched what was supposed to be a simple exercise of holding him up. But you look at the two of them and you see their bloodshot eyes their pale skin. It's obvious that they're already quite hungry. After all, Sage said she only gave them what was necessary to stave off the hunger frenzy. Perhaps you should have known that there was a chance of their beast rearing its ugly head in this crucial moment, screwing everything up, forcing Slick to go in for the kill. Ah, oh, well. It's done now. The two thin bloods shrug. You see them staring longingly at the collapsed man, blood pooling around him, gushing out of the stab wound in his rib, mixing with urine, and yet they're so hungry that even this looks appetizing to them. But they're waiting for you to give the word. So does the does the bathroom door have like a lock on it or is it like you look around and indeed it does have a lock it's got one of those little metal latches that you can latch it shut so from the outside it'll say occupied yeah i'll just click click the door to occupied yep walk over click the latch and you have some time to deal with this mess. Thin bloods are straining, straining against their urge to throw themselves on the floor and begin lapping up the blood. They're waiting just long enough for you to give them the okay. I'll just sort of turn to Slick and just like, all right, give me a hand first and I'll try and like move the guy's body a bit. And it's just like, well, on the plus, that could have gone better, but on the plus side, you've already got an open wound. Slick nods. He looks around and says, uh, okay, uh, he's clearly distracted from the hunger that's fogging his mind. He says, oh, where are we taking him? Uh, one of the cubicles or... You look around, there's three urinals on the left-hand wall, and on the right, there's a single toilet cubicle. Aside from the entrance to the bathroom, the only other way out is a small window up near the roof, just large enough that either three of you would be able to squeeze through it with some difficulty. 
So is it just a regular cubicle? Or yep, like just a, a regular cubicle. Alright, I'll... Yeah, give me a hand, we'll... Yeah, I'm propping up on, like, as if he's sitting on the toilet. Not like, yeah. Just so, he, just so he's propped up off the ground, basically, not yep. necessarily. As you lift up the heavy-set man, Slick grabs hold of his legs. You carry him, half carry, half drag him over to the cubicle, and as you do so, you can hear Slick making sounds like a rabid animal. <laughs> Bearing his teeth. You prop the man up, up on the toilet in a seating position, and then Slick reaches down, rips the switchblade out of the man's rib, and then he and Emily squeeze into the cubicle, kneel down, and place their lips upon the stab wound, voraciously drinking the blood as it gushes out. They're hungry, rabidly hungry. And although they've succeeded in not killing the man so far, this is the crucial part. Just like, yeah, making sure to keep a close eye on them and like, so they don't seem to be looking like they're going to be too far. Yep. So I would like you to please make a wits awareness check. Uh, no, my rouse for wits early would have worn off by now, wouldn't it? Yep, it's a different scene. Yeah, so I'll rouse wits, which thankfully was a success. Better, <laughs> only two successes. Two successes, okay. Hopefully that's enough. You just yeah. stand there in the doorway of the cubicle watching the two thin bloods gorge themselves as they slurp up the blood, noisily splashing it around them. The man, old Conrad, groans and moans in pain. You see Slick begin to twitch. At some point, Emily withdraws, breathes deeply and looks towards you. She says, I... I don't feel like I've had enough, but I know I have. I don't want to take any more. You nod. Then you look at Slick. He's still going, and as Emily reaches out a hand to coax him away, he just growls like an angry dog. <laughs> Continues drinking blood, and at this point you notice he's on the verge of draining the man. So you step forwards, and with Emily's help, forcibly pull him away. From his victim he snarls <laughs> but within seconds composes himself he takes a deep contented sigh <sighs> he looks at you he says oh, I got carried away I <sighs> I wanted to stop but that voice within me had said to keep going and I he looks down he says I guess if I did we might have Drain this guy dry, right? Yes, yes, you would. Emily just says, Okay, okay, now, let's... 
Let's try this. She raises a finger in the air and then she kneels down again, placing her lips close to the stab wound. And then with a look of utter disgust on her face, you watch the tip of her tongue peeks out between her teeth and runs over the surface of the man's skin. Miraculously, although she does not have fangs, it appears that element of the vampire curse, at least, is still within them. She stands up, and the stab wound is gone. Conrad looks no worse for wear, save for his skin being much more pale due to the, all the blood loss. The front of his denim jeans stained with piss and blood. Oh, well, that worked, she says. Now, what do we do? Just leave him here and... I have, yes, I have an idea, but you two need to get washed up first. They nod. They make their way over to the sink, turn the taps, splash their faces with water wash the blood off their hands and forearms and try to get as much of it off their clothes as possible. They look at themselves in the cracked mirror. They both look distorted, monstrous, but mostly clean. Slick shrugs, he says, so what now? I thought that guy was quite drunk. Could make it look like he just had an accident, but... Well, you're the expert. Uh, yes, well, making it look like an accident's the gist of it. I'll, yes, I'll handle the talking to the barkeep. Emily, I just need... You look, you, I just need you to look a little distressed. And Slick just looks like you're trying to comfort her. They just nod. As you make your way out of the bar, and I'll handle talking to the barkeep. They look at each other, nod again, and then you make your way to the door, unlatch the lock, and step outside. And as soon as you push the door open behind you, Emily immediately lets out a very obvious fake sob. But she's covered in enough dirt and water, and her hair is just messed up enough that it lends some credibility to it. Slick wraps his arms around her and looks at her and then a very flat voice says, there, 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 it's all going to be okay. We'll, we'll get some help and you just sit down and she lets out a, another sob and says, no, my hair is ruined. You step out of the shadowy corridor into the bar proper and with Emily's loud sobs it would be impossible for the bartender to not hear you. She immediately whirls around, sees you standing there, slickened Emily behind you, doing their best impression of a damsel in distress, comforted by her knight in shining armour. She frowns, makes her way to the edge of the bar and she says, oh, is everything okay? Did something happen? Do I need to call an ambulance? Uh, that would, yes, that would be a good idea. Uh, it seems one of your patrons attempted to get a bit handsy with my young friend over there, and 
Slick decided to put it in, uh, put a stop to that, and they got a bit rough. Uh, got a bit rough with him. Go ahead and make a manipulation subterfuge check. Uh, it is five successes. Five successes? Okay, I'm going to get the baby teeth to roll a performance check. So. It's okay. It's okay. I I protected your honour, right? Says Slick, while Emily lets out another wail. He grabs my boob! And I'm going to roll for them a manipulation performance check. So that's going to be a dice pool of four for both of them. So that's four successes all up. So nine successes with yours. Immediately the bartender goes red in the face. She frowns and she says, oh, it was, it was that Conrad guy. Oh, I knew he was trouble. He's something of a regular, but there hasn't been a single time he's been here when he hasn't tried to pick a fight with someone. Some sort of veteran or something, so I feel bad to turn him away, but, you know, calls people pussies and asks them to, asks them to have a go and, uh, you know, all the, all the toxic masculinity you'd expect from someone like that is clearly not well well look i'll call the police and uh well he won't be welcome here again your friend is she okay does she need anything i she just trails off looking around from left to right stunned trying speechless trying to decide what to do in this situation Uh, yeah, we'll we'll get her home. We'll make sure she's looked after. She nods. She says, uh, "Conrad's okay, right? I mean, I know your friend fought him off by the sounds of it, but Slick says, "Ah, oh, don't worry, he'll live." Uh, took a bit of a slip on his own piss, knocked himself out. He's sleeping it off in the toilet cubicle there, but he's okay. She nods and she says, okay, well, uh, I'll call the police. Uh, and if you're sure you'll be fine getting your friend home, I can call a taxi, an Uber, anything you like. I, oh, I am so sorry this happened. She looks at, looks over at Emily with a look of genuine sorrow on her face. Emily just nods and says, no, it's fine. I just need to get home and clean myself up and... Lie down. Bartender nods. And then she looks over at you. And she says, sure there's... Sure there's no other way I can help? No. No, that's fine. We should be good from here. It's... Can't be helped what your patron's doing here. She nods. And she says, alright, well, uh... <sighs> I'll have it dealt with. Uh, 
please, uh, look, when you get home, uh, she reaches under the bar, pulls off a yellow post-it note, scribbles something down, she says, uh, this is my phone number, my name's, my name's Shelby, uh, look, I'd really appreciate it if you can just give me a call so I know your friend got home safely, and, uh, you can rest assured that Conrad will not be allowed here again. Uh, thank you, yes, I'll be, sure to, I'll be sure to let you know. Take the post-it note, and you nod, and then you turn around, make your way through the bar, the uni students cheering and reveling, their night going on as if nothing happened. And then you look behind you, over your shoulder to the thin bloods. They flash you a surreptitious smile as you push open the wooden door and step out into the night beyond. The journey back to Sages is uneventful. It's made mostly in silence, although you do congratulate the Thin Bloods on their first hunt, a hunt that could have gone very badly if you weren't there, but nonetheless a hunt that went well. You congratulate Emily on using her celerity to stay out of harm's way and give Slick some tips on how to ignore the ever-present protestations and urges of his beast. And as you guide your car once again through the city as the digital clock on your dashboard ticks over 10 past 10 p.m. You turn your attention to the last conversation you had with Jackie. Where are these thin bloods going to stay? You presume they'll be spending tonight again in the Red Star as there is more education for them to be guided through. But eventually, they will need to be ro relocated to a permanent haven. The options once again cycle through your head as the last cars making their way home from graveyard shifts at their office jobs in the CBD pass you by on the road, their headlights becoming a blur. You could keep them in your haven, try to keep them hidden away from the Chantry for as long as possible. You could let Professor Cypher and the Chantry know that you have the Thin Bloods and convince them of their utility, or you can take up Jackie on her offer. Owe her a future boon, but get a meeting with Randall Morrow, the Thin Blood speaker, who will keep the Thin Bloods safe within his Anarch network. Make some room at my haven. Yep. We'll keep them there for now. 
keep them there for now. And will you be telling anyone in the Chantry that you have them? on one of the like in one of the future nights or something because this is all technically after next session isn't it so yeah yeah but i think you'll be seeing professor uh, professor cypher in the next session uh, <laughs> in elysium yeah, but i think yeah but i think at some point like yeah i mean in the next session in elysium you might actually go up to professor cypher and you know Approach the topic yeah. with him and see how he feels about you keeping thin bloods. Mm. There is always yeah. your mauler, Seth. Um, yeah. you, could, <laughs> you could let him know that you have uh, people who you're keeping safe from the scourge in your haven and trust that he'll do his best to deflect Professor Cypher's attention for as long as he can. But keep in mind, he's still a member of the Chantry, and there is still always the chance that if Professor Cypher simply asks him whether you are engaging in any activities that he doesn't know about, he could just yeah. tell him. After all, regardless of personal loyalties, all members of the Chantry owe their loyalty to the head of the Chantry, and it would be a great offence to lie, or worse, refuse to answer the Primogen's call. Yeah, yeah I think it'll be... I'll, yep. Yeah, I'll go with something like that. Like, yeah, I tell Seth that I'm keeping two people. Like, keeping some people safe from Scourge at the moment. And then at some point, I'd also, I think at this point, I'm going to let him know that we can probably send out the information we have from those reports. We can send those ah, out. Ah, send those out. Good idea. Yeah. yeah. So, as you drive, you turn on your phone, dial Jackie's number and slide it into the cradle on your dashboard. Her voice comes through hands-free. Ah! Training day over. Nicely done. Since I'm hearing back from you, I assume it all went well. So, uh, what's the go with Randall Morrow? Not tonight, you tell her. Bring him back to the Red Star. Got more training I want to do with them. But when all is said and done, I'm going to bring them back to my haven. I'm going to take a chance. To take a chance, she says. But the Chantry, eventually you'll have to... You cut her off. Don't worry. I have plans. I hope you know what you're doing, she says. So do I, you say. <laughs> and then you hang up. You dial Seth's number. His gravelly voice comes through the headset. Yeah? Listen, you tell him. I know you've taken me under the wing, under your wing, and I know that you go out on a limb to do this, and I know that... When push comes to shove, 
If Professor Cypher asks you to do something, that has to go first. But I need a favour. A favour, he says. This wouldn't happen to concern that little conversation you had with Professor Cypher at Elysium last night. Now, does it? Maybe, you say. Maybe not. Got some people that the Scourge wants dead. And I think they're going to be useful. You hear Seth scoff. People the Scourge wants dead. Thinbloods, you mean. You're going to squirrel them away in your haven. You silently nod and then you say... Well, I already gave you that intel on the SI, and these two are going to be our ticket to even more. They can pass as human. I haven't tested it yet, but they claim they can withstand the sun, can operate in the daylight, and if that's true, then you hear Seth purr on the other end of the phone. Mmm, yes. I agree. They could be useful. Look, I'll do my best to keep the professor out of your hair, but you know how he is. Eventually, he's going to want to pay a visit to your haven. You know how he likes to... know how he likes to be up to date on what every member of the Chantry is doing, right down to what's in their haven. Control freak. But that's the Tremere way. I'll try to get him to put it off as long as I can, but he will eventually find out. And when he does, I'll back you up, try to help you with the argument that these thin bloods will be useful, but the rest of it, you're going to be on your own, understand? Yeah, I'm not expecting you to put yourself out any further than you already have. I'll try, though, he says. A lot of Camarilla, they hate the Thin Bloods, but, well, you've read the same books I have. A lot of knowledge squirreled away there in Professor Cypher's library. (laughs) All those mortals on the university campus, they have no idea what sort of things are waiting for them in the restricted section (laughs) in that old library in the basement. Of the, human- of the humanities department. I agree. If the SI are a real threat, and those files you gave me suggest they are, then we're gonna need infiltrators. You can bet they'll have infiltrators of their own. The best way to fight fire is with fire. And those thin bloods seem to be best place for that role. You agree with him, and then you say, Look, I'm not asking you to put yourself on the line with nothing in return. That info I gave you about the SI, send it Professor Cypher's way. I hinted to him in Elysium last night that something important was going down, that I was working on something behind the scenes. He'll be curious as to what I've been doing, and maybe... This will be something to tide him over. Keep him from asking too many questions, at least a little bit longer. Hmm. 
pass all that info, all that intel up through the chain. Up to Professor Cypher, says Seth. I can do it, but are you absolutely sure? Once I get it out there, once it's in the Professor's hands, we can't get it back. The entire Chantry will know, and, well, Professor Cypher's a primogen. He has his own pursuits, his own ties in the meth, in the messy nest of politics that is the Camarilla. We can't guarantee that he's not going to make it known to the other Primogen, to the Ventru and the Toreador as well. Are you absolutely sure? Mostly sure, but sure enough. There's silence for a few moments, just the hum of the car engine sputtering down the motorway, the sound of other vehicles whooshing past, the thin bloods exchange silent glances, you let Seth's words hang on the air, and finally he speaks again, okay, I've just hit the button, Emails out there should be in the professor's inbox right about now. No turning back from this point. Hope you know what you're doing. So do I. And with that, as your car speeds along through the city, leaving the CBD behind and once again being engulfed by the shadows where the Anarchs lurk, where the likes of Sage, Jackie, Cisco, and Thomas Roth conduct their nightly court. We end this session. You gain two experience points in addition, you gain three dots of allies to represent the Thinbloods. And you also add the floor Dark Secret. You are fostering Thinbloods who, for all intents and purposes, are fugitives of the Camarilla. Unauthorised embraces and high generation embraces at that harbingers of the end times, or at least the Scourge would have you believe. And although the information you've released, along with Seth's well-placed prodding should keep Professor Cypher out of your hair for quite some time. It's still a ticking time bomb. One night, sooner or later, he's going to pay a visit to your haven, and one way or another, he's going to find out. And then you'll be in the frying pan. It was one thing to talk down Larson, but talking down your own Primogen 
making such a blatant display of subordination against him. That's going to be a tough sell. So please go ahead, add one dot flaw to your character sheet, Dark Secret. That was Training Day, Episode 8 of Vampire War for the Second City, a Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition actual play podcast presented by DM Fiat. With me, Dale, as Storyteller, Lost Demiurge as Hope, H. Quen as Sylvia, Paradox Mimic as Derek, and Ash as Vincent Merriweather. Music was created by Kevin McLeod and is used with permission. Vampire the Masquerade and the World of Darkness are the registered trademarks and property of White Wolf Entertainment and Paradox Game Studios.